Numbers. We live by numbers. We track and count and measure everything. And sometimes we think the only numbers that really matter are the big ones. But it's the single digits that make the difference. The Bible says that heaven rejoices with the number one. Yeah, heaven rejoices each time even one person comes to know Jesus. We pastors dream about big numbers, and we should. But a daily focus on one meaningful interaction for Christ, that's the true difference maker. One friend, one family member, one coworker, one person at a time. We want to see God move in our nation like we have never seen before, but it all starts with one. I've got my one, and now I'm challenging you and your church to join us and to find yours. Because ultimately, the only number that really matters is one. Who's your one? You ever thought about that? Who wants just one? I mean, you think about that. I mean, how many of you have ever just put your hand into a bag of potato chips just to pull out one chip and say, I'm satisfied, right? You reach in there, and Lay's has that commercial that says, bet you can't eat just one. And they're right, because they, they count on the fact that you're going to keep eating and eating and eating. How many of you will be happy with just one cookie? You know? I mean, let's be honest. You know, you pull out that box of cookies, it's not just for one. Now, you might say, well, Brother John, I'm on a diet, so one cookie will do. Now, don't lie to yourself. You're going to pull out two, three, four cookies. One, one is those, that number that, that we're just not satisfied with. I mean, you think about it even as a kid. You know, the tooth fairy comes nowadays, and uh, for some reason, one dollar doesn't seem to be enough from the tooth fairy, right? You're looking at it, like, the kid looks at it like, do you not, have you never heard of inflation, right? <laughs> One dollar, really? A dollar? And so we look at that, and oftentimes we look at that, and we say one just seems like such an insignificant number. But you got to think about this. You were somebody's one. Somebody reached out to you. You were their one. In fact, when you look at the Bible, there's a lot of times where God uses the number one as something that's very important. As, opposed, as, as we talk about one pearl of great price, or you talk about one lost sheep, or one wayward son, you just never know what the number one can be all about. You never know what your one invitation to church can be about to that person. You never know about what your one prayer can do for that person. You have no idea when you think about that one message of hope that you share with somebody. When we reach out to one neighbor, one coworker, one family member, one plays such a significant role in our lives. So this morning, I'm going to simply ask you, who's your one? Who is the one person that God is laying on your heart this year? That one person that you're going to be praying for consistently. That one person that you're going to invite to church. That one person that you're going to share the message of hope with. That one person that you are praying that God will draw them to himself so that they might be saved. Who's your one? Well, let's look in Scripture. We're going to talk about three parts to being an intentional witness because that's got to be the key let's be honest you're not just going to fall into witnessing it's just not going to happen you have to be intentional in your witness you're not just all of a sudden going to say to yourself well you know what i think i'm going to just tell somebody about jesus today no you're going to have to pray about it you're going to have to be ready you're god is going to use you you got to be intentional and there are certain steps that you need to take certain steps that i need to take in order to be intentional about our witness for christ so we're going to look at three parts to being an intentional witness this morning. And John chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. John 1 verses 45 and 46 and verse 49. The first way to be a part of being an intentional witness is to proclaim, come and see. John 1 beginning in verse 45. 
said, Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Nathanael later proclaims in verse 49, Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. I wonder how many of you have ever had that discussion with somebody. You walk up, you're excited about your faith, you begin to tell them about Jesus, and you tell them what God has done in your life, and that person kind of throws you a curveball and goes, well, that's all well and good for you, but it's just not my cup of tea. I wonder how many of us have ever had somebody be a little bit negative when we share our faith. Somebody might look at us and say, well, that might be what you believe, but that's not what I believe. Or you can go to church with all those hypocrites and all those people that don't live what they proclaim, but I'm going to stay at home and just do my own thing. I mean, we've probably all run into those people that the moment that we begin to proclaim and get excited about what God has done for us, Satan wants to throw a little curveball in there, and he wants us to get bothered by what somebody says. I mean, imagine, Philip goes up to Nathaniel, he goes, we found the guy, the guy we've been searching for, the guy we've been talking about, the guy that Scripture is proclaiming, and he goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, could you imagine if somebody said that to you and you said, hey, man, we have found a great church, man. We're so excited about going to church. We go, we're making sure that we're in church every time the doors are open and we're excited. And they say, well, where's your church? And they go, Lebanon. And they go, is anything good come out of Lebanon? I mean, you think about that. I mean, all of a sudden they throw you that little curveball and the question is, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? I always love it when people say, well, you know, I go to this great church. We say, well, good, that's awesome. Invite people to your church. And people go, well, I just don't know if I feel like I can invite somebody to church. Well, why not? Probably because you won't be there. Is that what you're saying? You usually won't invite them because you're afraid they show up and they go, where were you at? You know? But he says, come and see. And that's the idea. Sometimes when we're talking to people, we can tell them, come and see. Come check it out. You want to see where God's moving? You want to see how God is excited? You want to see how God's moving in lives? Come and see. Check it out for yourself. I promise you, you will be amazed. But let me tell you something. Here's the amazing thing. 96% of people that will ever come to faith in Jesus Christ are invited to come and see. 96% are invited to come and see. Check us out. But get this. Now, this is a scary thought. 20% of believers will invite another believer to church. You ever done that? You ever been talking to somebody? And they come up and they, they go, hey, I'm trying to find a good church. Only 20% of people say, well, hey, come to church with me. They'll invite them to church. 20% will invite other believers to church. Now get this, you ready for this? Only 2% of believers will invite an unsaved person to church. 2%, that's it. That means there's very few people in here, according to statistics, but I don't think Hillcrest falls into that category, do you? I don't think it does. But it says 2% of believers in here will invite somebody that is not saved to church. Now, why is it easier to invite other Christians to church? Well, let me just tell you this. Don't invite other people to church that are going to another church. All right? You say, well, why is that? Because we're not in the business of stealing sheep. We're in the business of winning goats. That's what we want to do. And let me tell you something. We want to make certain we're reaching our community. 
We are working together with other churches to fulfill the gospel message. Let me tell you something. If God put everybody in Lebanon in a church today, even if every church was filled up, we still couldn't hold everybody. Did you know that? That's why we need all of us working together to find our one, to reach the lost in our community. That's what God's calling us to do. Come and see. In Luke chapter 14, there's this really unique story Jesus is beginning to tell. And he's talking about a banquet that's being thrown. And he's throwing this great supper in Luke 14. And he tells them to go out and bring all these people in. And some people don't come in. And then a whole bunch of people come in. But in verse 23, he says this. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. I love that idea. Compel them. You understand what that means? That means if you got to beg them to come to church. Here's the thing. Why are you worried about it? You never know what that one invitation can do. I had a friend of mine. His name was Steve Roof. We had revival one time at church. And Steve took this verse very serious. And so he was at work one day, and he invited this lady to come to church with him. He said, I want you to, to come to church tonight. We got revival going on. And she said, nah, I, I just I don't want to waste my time. And Steve said, okay. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you come to church with me tonight during revival. And here's what I'll do. If God doesn't speak to you and you get absolutely nothing out of the service, he said, I'll give you $100. Now, how many of you wouldn't take that challenge for $100? How many of you would give an hour of your time for $100? How many of you filled out a survey for a whole lot less than that and took about an hour? So he said, I'll give you $100 if you'll come to church. And when we leave, if you tell me I got nothing out of it, he said, I will give you $100. She came to church that night. She said, okay, I'll be there. She came to church. She sat with Steve. When the invitation was given, she got saved. That's what you call compelling. Now, I thought it was so funny. One time during Thanksgiving, a church decided that they would give a turkey to everybody that came to church at Thanksgiving. Isn't that amazing? A lot of people said, I can't believe they've wasted their money on turkeys. You know how many lost people they had in their church to get a free turkey? If it takes a free turkey to get people into church, give them a turkey. If it takes a ham, I don't care what they want. Give it to them if it's going to get them to come to church and come and see. We've got to compel them. Now, look at this. Look at what he says. I want you to go out there and compel them to come in. What does he say? That my house may be filled. Now, I want you to do something for me today. I'm going to ask you to be a little bit unbaptist for a moment. If you got an empty seat beside of you where somebody could sit, I want you to raise your hand. That's a lot of hands. That's a lot of space. Jesus said, I want my house to be filled. Could you imagine if every one of us went out there and found our one, we'd fill this place up. You say, well, Brother John, what will we do if we fill it up? We'll go to two services and fill it up twice. Then we build something else. I don't care. What I want to do is just reach everybody in Lebanon. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take you and me saying, you know what? I'm going to find my one. I'm going to invite my one. And I'm going to make a difference in somebody's life this year. We've got to invite them to come and see. But let me tell you, that's not where it ends. We also have to, number two, go and tell. Look with me in Mark chapter 16 and verse 7. Jesus has been resurrected. He comes to the ladies and he says this to the women that have come to the tomb. And, but go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before them unto Galilee. There shall you see him as he said unto you. We must go and 
tell. Now, it's important for us to invite them, but guess what? If you're not out there telling them, it's going to be a little hard for you to invite them, isn't it? So we've got to go and tell. I'm going to tell you one of my favorite things. I used to coach my daughter's soccer team. I've coached my daughter since she was about three years old out on a soccer field. The first team I ever got was called the Butterflies. I have never worn pink, but that was the team color. So guess what I had to wear? Pink. All right. So here I am out there coaching the butterflies. Well, when my daughter's about six years old, there's a family that's on our team. They're called the Kestevens. Jeremy and Ashley Kestevens, they have a little girl named Hannah that plays on the soccer team. And as I'm, all, I'm always out there and I'm making sure that I talk to the parents, I tell them where I go to church. Well, I took Jeremy and Ashley aside and I invited them. I said, hey, I want you guys to come to church with me. Now, this is out on the soccer field of all places, right? I said, I want you guys to come to church with me. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. If you guys will come to church, my wife and I and our family, we'll take you out to lunch. We'll pay for your lunch. And that way we can talk to you after church. And Jeremy and Ashley said, okay, we'll be there tomorrow. So they show up at church. They come to church. We go to lunch. After lunch, we begin to talk to them about what was preached that morning. We share with them. We talk with them. It takes a couple of months, but they keep coming week after week after week. And after a couple of months, the entire family got saved. Entire family. Why? Because you got to go and tell. Here's the thing. God can use you on the soccer field, in your schools. He can use you at the grocery store. I've shared the gospel with somebody at Walmart. Trust me, they need it at Walmart, don't they? I'm Go there after 8 o'clock. You think the demons have come out sometime. But I'm going to tell you. I'm not putting Walmart down. I hope y'all don't work there. I go to Walmart. All right. But you got to go. You got to go where they're at. You got to go and you got to meet them where they're at. You got to share the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. We're called to go and tell. He tells the women, go. But I'm going to tell you, here's what we need to do. We've got to recognize and repent of our excuses. Now, let me go over a few excuses with you just in case you've never said these or in case you have. Number one, spiritual lethargy. How many of you have ever gotten lazy in your spiritual walk? Ever gotten lazy in your spiritual walk? Now, what I mean by that is you come to a place where you just fail to obey God because you've gotten slack in your Bible study, in your prayer life, and in everything else. So you don't need a witness either because, you know, you just it's okay for some other people to do it but not me. Can I tell you, we can become spiritually lazy, can't we? It's real easy for that to happen. I mean, it's real easy once you stop reading the Bible to just keep on stop reading. And it's easy when you just stop praying except for when you pray for your food and you ask God to bless it, but you don't ask him to bless anything else in your life. It's real easy to just lay back on that. And it's real easy if you're not out there witnessing to just never go out and witness to people and never share the gospel. It's just real easy to keep doing what we've always done. But you know what the definition of insanity is, right? It's doing the same thing and trying to get different results. If you've ever wondered why your spiritual life just didn't get off the ground and running, maybe it's time for you to start taking off and doing what God has told you to do. We've got to stop being lazy, and we've got to be faithful to what God has called us to do. Number two, there's a growing inclusiveness. A growing inclusiveness. I've actually heard some people claiming to be Christian, and I'm sorry, you can't claim to be Christian if you claim this, that have made the statement, well, all religions lead to heaven. Y'all keep listening to Joe Losting, you'll agree, yeah, right? That's, that's where he goes. That's what he believes. 
Let me tell you what my Bible says. My Bible says that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Now, here's the thing. It's not an inclusive gospel. And a lot of people say, well, why are you being so exclusive? Because Jesus was exclusive. I mean, that'd be like going to the doctor, and he'd give you a diagnosis for your, your ailment, and he tells you, here's the only way to get that ailment out of your body. And you say, well, I'd like a second opinion. Well, you can have a second opinion, and you can get a wrong opinion. I'm just telling you how it is. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no growing inclusion. Somebody asked me, well, you brother, what do you think about the Muslims? What do you think about the Buddhists? I tell you, they need Jesus too. God wants to save them as well. We need to go out there and tell them about Jesus. Same thing with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They need Jesus too. They need the real Jesus. They need to know what Scripture teaches about Jesus. You say, well, man, you might be pushing people aside. I'm not pushing anybody aside. Jesus wants them. He died for all of them, and I want them to know who he is. But we can't be inclusive in saying, well, everybody's going to get there. No, not everybody's going to get there. Or why else would God tell us there's a place called hell? Oh, but that's the third one, (laughs) a disbelief in hell. Now, you might be blown away by this, but I'm here to tell you, 46% of evangelicals say they don't believe in hell. Now, evangelicals, please understand what that means. An evangelical, that's the category we fall in. They're Christians who believe in sharing the gospel. Now, that's funny. Christians who believe in sharing the gospel, and yet only 2% of us will do it. Unbelievable, right? You can believe one thing, but it's about what you live and what you do. But you think about it. There's a disbelief in hell. If you don't believe hell is real, and you don't believe that God's going to send people to hell, and I always think that's interesting when people will make the statement, God will never send anybody to hell. You're exactly right. God's not going to send them. You choose to go there when you refuse his precious gift through Jesus Christ. Hell is a place you choose to go. Because here's the thing. If you want to be without God in this world, what makes you think you get to spend eternity with him? He'll give you exactly what you want. You want to to live life without him? He'll give you eternity without him. You see, that's the truth. Hell's a real place. We need to recognize that. Number four. Oh, man, this is a tough one. We get busy. I'm going to tell you, man, I got the same 24 hours you got. Right? We got family, and man, it's tough. It's tough when you got sporting events to get to. It's tough when you got work to get to. It's tough when you got a shop, grocery shop, you got to cook, you got to clean, and you got to make sure that you're doing this and you're doing that. And man, we can get so busy. Let me tell you something. We can get so busy doing the things of life that we fail to do the things of God. Let me tell you something. Why do you think God puts you in that sports league? Do you not think that there are people there that God doesn't want you to reach there on that team? Man, every team my son and my daughter's ever been on, there are lost people on every single one of them. Why do you think God put us there? So that we can witness and talk to them about Jesus Christ. You might say, well, brother, you just don't realize it. But what about my work? Well, praise God. Share Jesus at work. Let me tell you, you probably work with a bunch of lost people. And it's okay to share Jesus. You said, well, brother, if I tell somebody about Jesus, I'll lose my job. If you lose your job for sharing Jesus with them, I promise you God will provide a better job. Guaranteed. I get so tired of hearing that. When, if God opens the door for you to share the gospel, you share it. Number five, a fear of rejection. One, let me tell you something. Only one in four people are resistant to the faith. That means one in four. Can I tell you the most resistance I've ever gotten with sharing the gospel? Somebody closing a door in my face. That's it. How hurtful is that? I just go on to the next house. And some people say, I'd wipe the dust off of my feet. No, God ain't done with them yet. Go back, knock on it again. Let them slam it a second time. Let them slam it a third time. I don't care. The thing is, we got to be about the business of God. And that means we don't worry about being rejected because here's the truth. They're not rejecting 
you that are rejecting him. We've got to go. Number six, another excuse is a desire to be tolerant. I'm probably the least PC pastor you'll know. I am not politically correct. All right? And I don't care. You say, well, don't we need to be tolerant? What do you mean tolerant? Do we need to be a little bit nicer? Yeah, I can believe we can be nicer. But what do you mean by tolerance? Here's the problem. Let me tell you what's going on in our world today. We got a problem with the idea of tolerance. I tolerate people that have wrong opinions. That's fine. But then ought to be able to tolerate me if they think I'm wrong. The problem is they want to shut me up because they don't like what I have to say. You don't like what I have to say? That's fine. Tell me you don't like it and move on. But don't tell me I can't say it. That's the problem. They want to shut Christians down. They want to stop the message of the gospel. This commu- the people want us to stop because they want to take this world down a path of sin. They would be much rather have America fall down in a sinkhole that we can never come back from. But I'm not going to sit down and I'm not going to shut up. We don't have to worry about being intolerant. A seventh excuse is losing the habit of witnessing. Let me tell you something. That's one of the biggest. Witnessing is like working out. You know what? Many of us will pick up working out at the beginning of the year. How many of you have hit the gym over the last couple days? How many of you just went and got a gym membership? Right? You work out two days, you're like, yep, done my duty for the year. I'm good. Many of you will treat witnessing like that. You'll get started. But here's the thing. If you don't continually work out the muscles of witnessing, you'll stop doing it. It's a, it and you say, well, what do you mean? You, should you make it a habit? Of course you should make it a habit. You should make it a habit when you run into people, you ask them, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? You say, well, why would you ask that question? Because if you ask somebody if they're saved, 99% of people in Lebanon are going to tell you, yeah, I'm saved, just so you won't talk to them. But I ask them, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? I've asked people that have been going to church all their life, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? And they'll give me a works answer, and I'll go, let me tell you, brother, this is what it's going to take to go to heaven. You see, that's the issue. We've got to have a habit of sharing the gospel. We've got to get about it, and we've got to keep doing it. Number eight, a lack of accountability. Nobody holding us accountable. Let me tell you something. I want somebody to hold me accountable. We've been going through some candidates for ministry positions here in the church. And I called them up, and one of the last questions I asked them, I said, when was the last time you led somebody to the Lord? When's the last time you led somebody to the Lord? Now, what's interesting is four out of the five of them immediately was like, well, the last time I led somebody to the Lord was right around Thanksgiving. Oh, I led somebody to the Lord just a couple of weeks ago. I had one guy that goes, you know, I'm not sure. Okay, he goes, we've got some leaders that have led people to the Lord, and we've got some youth that have led people to the Lord. I said, brother, I didn't ask you about the leaders and the youth. I asked you, when was the last time you led somebody to the Lord? He goes, you know, I, I, I can't say. Have you ever led anybody to the Lord? Man, I'm going to tell you, that's a scary thought. But if there's a lack of accountability, here's the thing. I want somebody asking me, when was the last time you led somebody to the Lord, brother? I want to be able to shout it out last week. Yesterday, I don't want it to go more than a month. Now, you say, well, brother, you don't get to lead them to the Lord. Well, you get to lead them to the Lord, but here's the thing. If you're out sowing, you're going to reap. The problem is the reason why you're not reaping is you're not sowing. 
If you're out sowing, you will reap. God promises that. And so here's the thing. I do believe we can lead people to the Lord, not because of what we've done, but because of what he does through us. Number nine, the failure to invite. I just want to ask you a simple question. When was the last time you invited somebody to church? When was the last time you invited somebody to church? And number 10, a church not intent on reaching the lost. You know the most recent statistic is it takes 85 members to reach one lost person. 85 members. Did you know that 90% of Southern Baptist churches are stagnant or declining? Did you know that I think it's 85% didn't record a baptism last year? That's kind of scary. I, I thank God. I think I've baptized nine in the last two months. This is awesome. And let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you, it ain't me. It's because God is using faithful people like you. God is using you, family members, loved ones, leading their children to the Lord, being the example that you need to be, leading our ministry leaders to lead people to the Lord. Man, it is exciting to be a part of a church where many people are out there sharing the gospel, and I pray we'll keep doing it. But here's what I want to ask you to do this year. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Three things. Number one, I want every one of us to invite one lost person to church for Easter. You say, Brother John, what happens if, if everybody invites somebody to come to the Easter service and they all show up? Some of y'all, some of y'all might be standing during church. That's fine. That's okay. If, if you got to stand, stand. I got to stand. All right. Stand up during church. If we got to line the stairs, we'll line the stairs. We can put chairs down the aisle, whatever we got to do. Man, we can fill it up. Why not? Invite one lost person to church this Easter. Number two, I want you to invite one lost person to lunch or dinner with you so that you can share the gospel. How hard is that? Invite them to lunch. Invite them to dinner. Let me tell you something. People will not turn down free food. And I'll tell you something real simple. Men, you need to be the ones inviting. You hear that? I want you to be the leaders in your homes. You invite somebody to your house. And, and you might say, well, brother, i got to ask my wife if she's willing to cook. If you got to ask, I'm going to ask who has the pants. Told you I'm not PC. <laughs> Let me just tell you this, and here's how you can do it. This is real simple. You invite them over to dinner. Guess what? They're stuck, right? <laughs> and here's what you can do. If you don't feel comfortable sharing your story, what you can do is you can say, guys, I'm so glad y'all came over today. I'd love for my wife to tell you about her journey with Christ. You see, all you got to do is share your story. Because here's the truth. Nobody can tell you your story ain't right. It was so cool. I got, I got to be in the Sunday school class this morning, and Corey Wills shared his story. And as he shared his story, all I could sit there and think is, man, that's, that's as simple as it comes with sharing the gospel. Because can't nobody deny what happened in his life. I'm going to tell you, it's exciting. If you haven't heard Corey's story, you need to listen to it. But I'm going to tell you, that's what it's all about. Invite them to dinner to share the gospel. Lastly, invite one unsaved person to church in 2020. 
one unsaved person in church. If you get them to come Easter, you've already fulfilled your duty. But here's the thing. Once you get them to come, I think you're going to want them to keep coming and keep coming. We need to invite. We need to go and tell. We need to come and see. And finally, we need to find our one. Look with me in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. Jesus speaking parables unto them. He said this in verse 45 again. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now you need to understand a little bit of background to understand this story a bit better. Okay, Pearls were the most precious commodity at this time. They were more precious than diamonds or gold. And it's interesting because nowadays we look at pearls and we think, they're not that big a deal. They're not that pricey. They're not as... But back then, they were the most unique and precious commodity. Pearls were greatly valued because diving for oysters that contained pearls was extremely dangerous. Many people lost their lives diving for oysters. And because of its beauty and its scarcity, it made them extremely valuable, so much so that many people would give all they had to possess a pearl of great price. That's what this story is teaching us. This guy goes out. He's willing to sell everything he owns. Could you imagine you'd be willing to sell everything you own, your car, your house, to own this one great pearl? That's how precious this pearl was to him. You need to understand what this pearl is. This pearl is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the most precious commodity you will ever have in this world. It is worth selling everything you own to have a relationship with Jesus. You say, well, would Jesus ever ask us to sell? Well, I think about the rich young ruler. A lot of people, it's always interesting to me. Jesus told him to go sell everything he had and what? Come and serve him. And a lot of people say, oh, well, Jesus was just trying to make a point. He never really intended for him to sell everything he had. Really? Is that what you get out of that story? It's not what I get out of that story. Because I think he really wanted to see if Jesus was number one. So don't tell me he might not ask you to sell everything you've got and pack it up. Look at missionaries. They sell everything they have, pack it up, and go overseas. So don't tell me Jesus won't do it. But what I'm telling you is simply this. When you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything else pales in comparison to it. It is the greatest value, the greatest objective you have in life. But I want to ask you this. How valuable is your one to you? How valuable is the one that God has laid on your heart to you? Can I tell you, about a month ago, God put one on my heart. She kept coming by my office. She had great value to me. In fact, so much value to me that every time she was here at church, I made sure I bumped into her. God would put her on my heart and I'd pray for her. And I wouldn't stop praying for her. And she says she could tell I wouldn't stop praying for her because she couldn't sleep. But I thank God for that. God just kept putting her on my heart. And I was like, I'm not going to stop, God, till you save her, till you change her life. She means that much to me. I got to baptize her just a couple of weeks ago. Man, that was so exciting. And you know what? To watch her walk up and give me a hug with the biggest smile on her face, man, there is nothing more valuable to me than seeing that smile. It is awesome. But how valuable is the one that God has laid on your heart? How valuable. I think about a lady in our first church who prayed for her husband for 28 years. 28 years she prayed for him to get saved. But you know what? She prayed and she would invite him to church. But you want to know what changed his life? 
his son. His son, one Christmas, gave him a Bible with a little message written inside of it. I don't even know what the message was. It was a personal message for his father. After Christmas, his dad never missed a church service. Had never really come. I think I'd seen him in church one time in the eight years I'd been pastoring at that time. Maybe one time I had seen him. But he never missed a service after that. And in April of that year, he got saved. And we had a party in church that morning. There was a wild celebration because of what God had done. Because she saw value in him. I ask you this, or I tell you this. I have my one. And my one is of greatest value to me. To be honest with you, I tell you how valuable my one is to me. I would give up my salvation for my one to be saved. That's how much my one means to me. I love him more than anything. And I love my one that much. But I ask you this question this morning. How valuable is your one to you? How valuable is your one? This morning, I'm just asking a little simple question. You got this thing right there in your bulletin with you. You say, well, what are you asking me to do with this? Well, there's two things. One, there's a little perforated section there, and guess what? You can rip it off. What I'm going to ask you to do with the little blue tag, it says who's your one on one side, who's your one on the second side, it asks you to put a name on there. If you've got a name already, praise God, you write the name on that card, and then I'm going to ask you to do one other thing. I'm going to ask you to write your name on there. You say, why are you asking me to write my name on there? Well, there's two reasons for it. One, I want, to know that you're, that I'm, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And not only am I going to pray for you specifically, but I'm going to pray for the one whose name you write down. So I want you to write on this little itty-bitty card the name of your one and your name, and then I'm going to ask you to drop it in this box right here. we got four boxes up here. It's simply to collect these little cards. That's all it is. So that I can be praying for you and praying for your one. Now, if you don't have your one yet, you may say to me, well, Brother John, I don't, I don't know one right now. That's fine. That's fine. Go find your one. Pray about it. Ask God to guide and direct you to who your one is. Because here's the thing. If there is, I promise you, God has somebody in your life he wants you to reach. But then you get to keep this. On this card, you write the name of your one. This becomes a bookmark. You stick it in your Bible. So that every time you see that name, you pray for them. You pray for them. You don't stop praying for them. You don't even stop praying for them once they get saved. Because then you got to pray for some new things. Pray for them to grow in their relationship. You're praying for them all year round. You might say, well, brother, how do, I, how do I pray for somebody that's not a Christian? That's, I'm glad you asked that question. There's a whole table of books out there right out at the Welcome Center. And it'll tell you how to pray for your one. It'll give you a 30-day guide on how to pray for your one. Pick it up. Pray for them. Who's your one? Will you invite somebody to church this year? Will you invite somebody to Easter this year? Are you going to do what I've asked you to do? And here's the thing. Don't act like I'm asking you to do it because this is something God would like you to do. He wants you to invite them. He wants you to pray for them. He wants you to reach them. Who's your one? But I also want you to know this morning, some of you in here may be somebody else's one. Because I, I know when it comes to church, not everybody in here is a Christian. You won't have a one until you have a relationship. My prayer is today you'll get that thing right. Because let me tell you something, God loves you more than you could ever know. That's why he brought you here this morning.
so that you could hear about his love that he has for you. Will you come this morning? You say, well, brother, I'm just, you, you don't know me and you don't know my life. That's okay. You don't know me and you don't know my life either. And I can just tell you, if God can change me, he can change you. If God can change a man who killed thousands of Christians in the Bible, his name was Paul, and God could use him to change the world, then yeah, he can save you. There's nobody too far gone. My prayer this year is that we will all find our one. And I'm here to tell you, once you find one, and once they give their life to the Lord, go find another. But we'll just start with one. Just one. You know what was cool this morning? Somebody told me, he said, well, I couldn't find just one. I got three. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'll be happy if every one of us picks one. 